Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, president of Premier Speakers Bureau and your host. Our guest today is a Wall Street Journal bestseller of Fearless Leadership. Uh, She's the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. Her speech and book just coming out now is Span of Control. Brian, I'm so excited to be here today. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. So our first question, obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of different meanings for this. What to you is span of control? Your span of control is is really being intentional on what it is that you should be focusing on and understanding that at the end of the day, everything else is just a distraction. So what I've been able to do is through you know, years of, of flying fighters. And for the last 15 years or so, I've been working with Fortune 1, Fortune 500 companies, doing leadership development, strategic planning, all of that good stuff is figure out how can you take that and put it into a framework that's really actionable. Um, and that also helps leaders and managers clarify the complex because we're living in such a time of overwhelming chaos, I think right now, uncertainty and people are really getting overwhelmed and we're, we're getting our attention pulled in a thousand different directions. And at the end of the day, no matter how much tenure you have, how much experience you have in your industry, uh, when you, when your focus gets pulled in a thousand different directions, when you dilute your focus, you dilute your power. And then it doesn't matter how good your strategic plan is or how talented your team is. You, you, are going to end up struggling when you start getting pushed to that limit, push the wall. So span of control, I think is going to be super helpful, uh, hopefully for people to try to figure out how do you, how do you find the opportunity in the chaos and uncertainty because it's 100% possible. So when did a uh, span of control really uh, turn into something that, that was meaningful in your life? So it's actually been a mantra of mine for years and that ability of trying to figure out, you know, how do you identify the most important things? How do you formulate a flight plan for success, if you will? And then how do you let anybody else know what's possible? And it's something that I started leveraging even early on years ago when I had four kids under seven and uh, ran into a bit of a health, uh, a health scare, if you will. But then most certainly in the work that I've done in the corporate space and in the business sphere, is that it's become not just a mantra, not just a framework, but it has allowed me and others that I've worked with to establish a really good foundation for extraordinarily effective communication and decision-making and even risk managing. So uh, it was about three years ago that uh, I was going through a time, my mom was really uh, quite ill and it happened very fast, that I got my first tattoo that my daughter designed and I was terrified she was not going to approve of it because she was not a big fan of tattoos. And I showed up with it and she saw it and I told her what it was. And it's just the initials SOC for span of control um, to remind me in those darkest times and amidst chaos to just, just make sure you focus on the most important things and try to let everything else go. And, uh, Thankfully enough, she liked it. She approved. So <laughs> dodged, a, dodged a scary one on that one. 
Oh, yeah. So with this, uh, why do you think it is so important? I mean, I think it's always been important to figure out what you can control, what you can't control. Why do you think it's so important right now? Well, you know, I think I can reflect back from my time, even flying fighters. And, you know, you are not going to find a carrier-based fighter pilot, somebody who has landed on and off of aircraft carriers that has not had their night in the barrel, has not had a time where they've become just wrapped and drenched in sweat, uh, where they have a pit in their stomach and they wonder if tonight's going to be the night they're not going to make it. But all of us, fighter pilots included, high performers included, have to figure out if we want to be successful, we we have to figure out in the moment, again, in times of uncertainty, in times of overwhelm, how can we actually focus on that most important work? How do we identify that? How do we overcome task saturation? And these are actually learned skills. It's not something that somebody else is just more blessed with the capability. It's certainly, I know in the military and and from where I came from, there were probably millions of hours of research, of study, of training, so that when you're in those times of overwhelm, uh, when you're struggling to find that path forward, that you're able to do that successfully, that not only you can get to the other side, but as importantly, you're able to bring people with you. So I know certainly you've probably been working with clients in the last 14 months that, um, might even be at the point of breaking, that they don't know how to keep going forward when we are in a really uncertain time. So if there's if there's a way, if there's a tool set, if there are some, some tips or techniques that I can share that can help people get through that to achieve what they want to do and what's possible for them, then boy, I'm super excited to do that. I mean, I was lucky, right? I kind of I, I was able to, to crack the code as well as fumble on the other side of it again when I had four kids under seven and was trying to run a business and pushed myself past my own physical limit that I figured out how what that path forward and, and out of that was going to be. Um, so I was I was grateful for that lesson learned. Wouldn't want to be there again, um, but hopefully people will find that helpful. Yeah, one thing I, I do like uh, that you've talked about is that you, even once you master it in one area, you know, from being a fighter pilot, then you need to figure it out as a mom, as a business owner, as a writer, as a different thing. What, how is your, how is your viewpoint of a span of control changed as you've gone through these sort of different iterations of using it? Well, that's a great question because I can tell you that certainly it's always easy to reflect upon your experiences and your coulda, woulda, shouldas. But I can I can say with 100% certainty that in those periods where I fumbled or in those periods where I've watched other people struggle and, and struggle to navigate what is because they become too anchored in what could have been, that I can I can very easily pinpoint where there was a breakdown, if you will. Um, and what, if there was one thing you could have leveraged that could have made a difference, that the roadmap is there. So it's it's through, you know, almost 30 years of experience actually uh, of studying the mechanics of success and failure and deep diving into the research and even brain science that this whole idea of span of control isn't just 
butterflies and unicorns and woo, this is going to be a sparkly little glittery saying it's it's based on the efficacy of it is actually based on lots of different bodies of research some of my own as well and it's proven to actually uh, help people be successful to navigate that so that's the piece of it and as you do i know i work with lots of different people you know you have you've got the creatives you've got the engineers the people who need the data they need the science behind it or they're like, yeah, I don't know. That's sounds a little fluffy to me. Here comes the motivational speaker. Um, so I think being able to straddle both of those worlds of, of experience and that relevancy backed with research and science is, is a bit of a win-win. One of the things you talk about too is, is the danger of autopilot, especially when it comes to task saturation, burnout, those sorts of things. Can you expand, uh, expand upon that a little bit more? Yeah, the hard part about that. So, so many of us are probably super familiar with when we're under uh, stress or duress, the fight or flight syndrome, right? Like we're either, uh, or the freeze. So we're either going to go all in and attack whatever's scaring us. We freeze like a statue or we simply run away. All of which, by the way, there should be zero shame around any of those very, very human responses because your body's doing everything it can to protect you. However, the one thing that that a lot of us have gotten um, dragged into a little bit, if you will, certainly I think over, over the last 10 years, not in the last 14 months, but in the last 10 years that we've become very comfortable and almost complacent with, we know how things are going to go. We just start becoming very automated uh, in our responses instead of being thoughtful or attentional. And, and the danger in, in doing the autopilot response, it can 100% be okay for a limited period of time because it can save you. No different than flying an airplane, right? It's first thing, if, if anybody's hand flying an airplane and they have autopilot available and there's an emergency, you generally put it on because you wanna do all the brain thinking work and let the airplane take care of itself. However, the danger in that is if you let that go on too long, then you do fall into either a complacency trap or even what's happened, you know, for a lot of people during the earlier parts of the pandemic, for sure, um, slides into a numbing situation that we don't even really pick up on. And whether that's over baking, uh, over Netflixing, over Huluing, over languishing, that then to move through that space effectively can become very challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we watched all the MCU movies like one, one through 23 or whatever it was during that time. So we had a little bit of autopilot too. Uh, so I know, I know a lot of people can identify with that, but one way that you talk about getting out of that is through purpose. How do you find mm -hmm. or identify your purpose? So that's one of the things that I think is, you know, it can be challenging for people when, especially when you hear a lot of, um, how do I say this, motivational uh, memes or Instagram or that sparkly advice that just can say, you know what, if you, if you find your purpose, you're never going to work a day in your life. And you know what, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I'm not so sure that I agree with that. Uh, if you're going to try to achieve anything worthwhile or, or anything that's above average or extraordinary, or even just simply showing up means you're not always going to love everything that you do. But I think when it comes down to fighting for your purpose, it's really understanding from a leadership perspective, 
if, if you're looking at your strategy or what's our corporate perspective, you know, we, we want to make sure that we're still working in alignment with that from an individual perspective, fighting for your purpose is also going to include, there are going to be times that you are going to have to be flexible. You are definitely going to have to try to tamp down some of the bias that you might bring to conversations or situations. So we're really going to want to work on focusing on facts over fear, which means we're going to have to stay curious. We're going to have to stay engaged and maybe not quite as reflexive. And then also from, again, from a leadership perspective, whether you're leading just yourself, your team of maybe five, 5,000, whatever the case may be, it's, it's having the ability to set your ego aside and face your failures head on. When you're able to do that, what happens is that those are all very proactive and meaningful ways to keep taking action and to keep moving forward in a directive manner. And again, back to the science piece of it, what we know to be true is that mood follows action 100%. -hmm. You're a runner. You're a triathlete. You know this is true. Not always maybe on the bad days, you're like, yeah, not in a good mood. That was a tough run. (laughs) But on balance, right, Mm -hmm. that mood follows action. And 100% of the time, action will conquer fear. So it's, it's understanding, taking a second to go, okay, what, what am I here for? Asking some of those questions and then just, just taking that one step, continuing that forward momentum. I always like to share with people, you know, you don't have to have it all figured out to take that first step. As long as you have some good processes and simple processes in place to learn and learn quicker than maybe your competition, maybe learn quicker than the ever-changing marketplace, then you can start taking action because you know you are going to learn and you're going to be able to incorporate those lessons learned really, really quickly into the next day, the next cycle, et cetera. So it's, it's understanding that, you know, this is hard work. It's not a glittery, glittery Instagram meme, just, you know, oh, fight for your joy. Mm, hashtag <laughs> blessed. Um, <laughs> But it's also understanding and, and I, oh boy, my poor kids, the number of times that I've had to even remind them. And one of the things that I, I want anchored as, as well as, as just being good people in, in the depths of their soul is uh, just to remember that uh, although, you know, a negative, a, a great attitude doesn't guarantee your success, a negative attitude kills your ability to adapt. So if whoever's listening or watching right now might find themselves drifting a little bit or I don't know why I just graduated a year ago. I don't know. I can't even get a job or, or I'm new or I was laid off or I want to get back into the event space, whatever the case may be um, that it's, it's hard work, right? And you don't have to have it all figured out, but just do one step, do something proactive and, and you will start developing that momentum. You'll start spinning that flywheel and you'll figure it out. What's your action step when you're in a bad mood? Oh, for me, I am with about 99.9% success rate. If I get a workout in, mm-hmm. I either can feel like I can solve any problem mm-hmm. or I 
at least in better than when I didn't do it. And mm -hmm. I will, I will share with you on the really hard days, the really down days, the days that, you know, maybe you spend 10 hours trying to help clients troubleshoot and work to a next step or a next level, or even, I mean, I would probably like a lot of kid, people on the, on the call right now. Uh, I had four kids all of a sudden at home doing virtual school on Zoom, fighting for bandwidth, fighting for how do I log into Google Meets, all of those things <laughs> that a rule that I've had, I don't even know when I started it, but at least 20 years ago, at least, because I can remember thinking about it one time when I was running. I have a 12 minute rule which is a little different than Mel Robbins' five-second rule. <laughs> by, by I, the math is hard, but by a lot of seconds. Yeah, um, yeah. My 12-minute rule is that on any given day, I, I need to try to work out for at least 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. And why for me that works is that usually the majority of the time, even on the days that it, it might be 10 o'clock at night and I'm hopping on my bike, um, once I get to the 12 minute mark, I'm like, well, I'm here, I might as well go to 45. Right? <laughs> and it works, but on the rare occasion where I am so beyond exhausted and I get to 12 minutes and 15 seconds and I'm mm -hmm. like, nope, not today. <laughs> <laughs> then at least I got 12 minutes in. Right. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't set up. It doesn't break that habit chain of, oh, I didn't work out yesterday. Oh, I didn't work out you know, two days ago. Oh, I didn't work out this week. But for me, again, it's, it's that mood follows action. It's the, the difference that helps your brain, the physiology, it all threads together. It's, mm -hmm. it's not about trying to hit some unattainable dress size or anything like that. It's all about keeping, keeping my head on straight. Mm -hmm. One thing I really like that you talk about is focusing on the good because so many things keep coming at you. What are your tips for helping people get better at focusing on the good? Well, you know what? So that, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I think is critical and right now for so many people to hear and understand, and when you think about the last 14 months specifically, it will help things make sense, is that how our brains are wired all of our brains, we're wired to grab onto any negative information that we hear. And what's so important for everybody to understand right now, again, this is science, is that when people are overwhelmed, when they're stressed, when maybe they don't feel like they have physical safety, psychological safety, job security, when we are overwhelmed with stress, we do not hear 80% of what is being shared with us. So what happens then is that as leaders, as teammates, as parents, right? Or partners, we might feel like, good grief, I have said this 10 times. How can you not hear me? Well, whoever, <laughs> whoever is on, think about your situation. You've got young kids. You're like, how many times do I have to tell you no? And you're like, well, okay, maybe with little kids, they're super distracted. But for the rest of us, those of us who are over the age of four and a half, when we're really overwhelmed, our brains are literally in self-protect mode. So we're not hearing when we're stressed 80% of what is being shared with us. So that should then open that space of grace for all of us that instead of operating from uh, a place of frustration or, or uh, becoming just, you know, just barking orders and not even communicating really clearly or effectively understand that if we want to be tilting toward the good, if we want to have our teams 
really be collaborative and supportive of each other. If they are stressed, operate and communicate from a perspective of, okay, whatever I'm putting out there, I need to put it through the filter of they might not hear 80% of what I'm saying. So then how do I change the tone? How do I change maybe the modality that I'm delivering that information? And maybe even how do I need to be a little more patient so that how I show up is supporting my team and is not leading them to become super burned out or worse yet, uh, or well, not worse yet, or also uh, really disengaged, which is is a big danger right now. Mm-hmm. How do you, um, how did you find the tenacity and resilience uh, to keep going when things were, were not, when things were going well and then when they were not going well? Right. So I think that oftentimes people think that uh, other people are just born more tenacious or, you know, that person is lucky. They're, they're more gifted. They're more resourced. They're more whatever the case may be. But I think that when it comes to either leading yourself or even leading your team, you always have to be mindful of the fact that how you show up matters and you are going to have to lead by example and cognizant of the fact that building your tenacity, that is tenacity is like a muscle. If you are opting out or holding back more often than you're going, you know what? I trust my team. I trust myself. We have the processes in place. We're debriefing. We're learning. We'll figure it out. Then when you run into those bumps and you run into those barriers, you will tap out because it feels overwhelming. It feels not doable. And that path forward suddenly gets super cloudy. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I really love that you talk about is history being the best way to stay grounded during times of stress. Where did you get that and how do you apply it? Well, I think I'm pretty fortunate in that I am keenly aware of the fact that, again, I grew up uh, just outside of Green Bay. And when I was very young. My dad had been, well, my dad was a Marine Corps aviator and then flew commercially, but I was about 11 years old. And he brought me down to my, myself and my brother down to the Oshkosh air show, which is the experimental aircraft association. And it's one of the biggest air shows in the world. I think it's second to the one in Paris. And it was then that I met one of the very original female military pilots, uh, a wasp. And I heard her story and I thought, well, that's really cool. But it went years after that, that, you know, this is obviously I'm old enough before the internet. So all you have is your resource or your, your knowledge book is, is your encyclopedia Britannica. And there wasn't anything about the wasps in there. And I never saw any women that were flying. And what I didn't understand was that eventually their story would end up coming full circle and that 100% of my experience was based on me standing on the shoulders of their experience. And they, for those that aren't familiar who are listening with the WASP's story, they were some of the first women military aviators who flew several million flight hours during the World War II effort. And when we won that war, and we wrapped things up. The demand had been so great for more pilots and we didn't have enough male pilots that that's why they brought the women into the fold. But when we won that, when we won World War II, all of the women were told essentially, go home, put your, put your uniforms away, don't speak of your experience, go back home and be good moms, good wives, good sisters, 
no need to ever mention this again. And for a lot of those women, it was extraordinarily damaging because everything that they did was in service of supporting that effort and in service of our country. And all of a sudden in the fell swoop of a pen, their identity, their, their belief of what they thought they were contributing evaporated. And it wasn't until another 25, 30 years went by that a small contingent of those women who thought they were going to be deemed military veterans, who thought that they were going to have those benefits of health care, of a GI Bill, even respect, circled back. And they were like, you know what? Essentially, we're not okay with this. We flew several million flight hours. They flew every single airplane in the inventory. They were shot at. They, were, they, they used to do live gunnery training where people would roll in and actually shoot at the target with real ammunition. And uh, they were like, we're not asking for anything above and beyond. We're just asking for recognition of the contribution that we made to this very successful global effort. And it took multiple, multiple trips to see senators, to see Congress people, uh, to advocate on their behalf. And, and in doing so, they were so careful with, you know, how are we going to phrase this? We don't want to offend anybody because people said we're too ambitious. Now, again, Brian, this is 30 years later. So these are women who are like my age, right? They're now 50, 51, 52 going, how did you forget about us? For 30 years, nobody's talked about us. So they navigated that system through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s. And it wasn't until 2009 that they were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. And there were so many women that during during the late 70s, they ended up standing up the Women Military Aviators Association. And I know this is a really long story, and I apologize. No, I I, I was intentionally hoping you would tell it. I know. I don't have a soundbite for this one. I'm I'm (laughs) no good at that. No good at soundbites. But they stood up what was called the Women Military Aviators Association. And they stood it up so that they could help empower and inspire the women who followed them. At the same time, they were simply fighting to be recognized by our country. So that the duality in that of what it takes to continue to be on this selfless path, trying to shepherd or mentor or help other women who also want to fly, who are being told no, is is quite astounding because they were still being told no. 30, 40 years later. Um, and again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be until just about, I guess, oh, why math is hard, about eight years ago now, mm-hmm. again, full circle moment, that I became the president of the Women Military Aviators Association as a way for me to understand or, or to be able to give back, right? I was on the board, I was director, and then I ended up being the president of it. So it's, it's understanding that journey that you don't have to throw it all the way back to, you know, um, uh, the Stoics, if you will. You can, you can simply go back a couple of decades and look at the, the WASPs, the, the first military women, female aviators, and look at what they went through from sabotage to being discredited to having to meet a bar 500 times higher than even some of the men who are trying to fly and just look at it and go, yeah, you know what? I think I'll give her a go. (laughs) (laughs) 
because if they can do that and it, and it made them being able to step into the breach, them being able to work through the very dangerous situations of sabotage, of being told that they weren't enough in that effort. And, and, you know, 1943-44, that was the linchpin. That was the thing that allowed us to, to win World War II. And I think that's pretty spectacular. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.